Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of Artists, and your mental picture of my guest this time will vary according to how much you know of the 60s. And I mean no at first hand. It's not what you think. I'm not going to say that if you weren't there in the 60s, you're under-informed about Sandy Shaw, the barefoot contessa of British song. It's rather the opposite, that those of us who were there got stuck too easily in the image-making of that time and assumed that Sandy would get stuck too. But having freshened up my ideas about her in advance of meeting her, I can see already that though there were sticky moments, she's kept moving more than most of us. It's hard to believe that her career goes back more than 50 years. Sandy Shaw, Sandy, welcome. Thank you. We don't have to believe it if we don't want to, but that was 1964, 50 years ago. To me, um, a lot of songs of that era seem like they belong to the mists of time, but not, not, not that one, actually. <laughs> You're being flattering. No, I don't, you know, I don't... It's I a don't really good song. It doesn't feel dated, does it? No, it doesn't at all. I was... We were talking about lyricists, and yeah. uh, I was saying that Hal David, the guy that wrote the lyric, is just so underrated. They always talk about Bacharach, yeah. but for me, it's the earlier work that he did that was so good when he wrote with Hal David... Was it Eve Taylor who who first found that song, who picked it up in America and brought it yeah, back? Yeah, that's the kind of thing they did in those days. And it was Adam Faith who alerted her to you. They were co-managing me. And, and where did he see you then? What kind of gigs were you doing? Because you were very, very young. Um, I, I started singing when I was about 15, and I used to sing in dance halls and like local social clubs at home, around Dagenham and Ilford, Romford, that kind of way. And... Um, through doing one of those, I was asked to appear on one of his shows that he was doing in, in London, a charity show. And he was on and the Hollies were on. And they all went crazy when I started singing because there wasn't, there were lots of boys groups, and boys doing things but yeah. that were of the moment, but there weren't any girls doing their thing. So Adam Face always been a bit um, entrepreneurial. And uh, so he started me off, started me off and started. Uh, put me in the recording studio and I started producing my own stuff from that age, from 16, mm. when I started, yeah. yeah. Is there a Dagenham Hall of Fame? Because there should be. There should be. There's much more of us now. They, they, we see, it seems to be growing, doesn't it? Well, it was pretty pretty good once upon a time. It was Dudley Moore came yeah, from yeah, there. Yeah. George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as was. <laughs> he was brought up in Dagenham. Well, so, Alf Ramsey, who was nearly as famous uh, as you in 1966. Well, yeah, we Sue Lawley. Oh, really? We I have Sue Lawley mm. and we have um, Ol Ollie Murs. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and Jamie, Jamie the cook. It's growing all the time. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, there should be one. But Dagenham in those days meant, well, it meant two things to me. The girl, the girl Pipers, the Dagenham Girl Pipers and the Ford Factory. And you, you did work there very, must have been very briefly because you were so young. Is that right? You did work for them? I never worked in the factory. Everybody thinks I worked in a factory. Mm. It's part of the mythology. No, I worked for their offices. I worked in the computer yeah. department. Uh -huh. And um, so I had nothing to do with the factory floor. My mother wouldn't have let me do that. No, no. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yes. Only for six weeks. Oh, well, that's six weeks. It's, it's putting, <laughs> putting in your time in Dagenham, I suppose. Yeah. They. But being a solo singer, starting out as one, as you say, wasn't the easiest way to go in those days because the groups were the thing. And even the prominent solo singers, a lot of them came out of groups like Dusty Springfield came out of the Springfields and so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, she did. How did you know you were going to be able to gain control of so much of what you did even then because nobody else was doing it 
I, I wasn't doing it for those reasons, mm. for gaining control. I was just doing it because I loved doing it and I knew what I wanted to do. So people, well, they had to listen to me, I suppose. But those, I used to work with a guy called Chris Andrews. Yes. Who was a songwriter and also came from Dagenham. Yeah, oh, um, I thought we he was were, from Romford. But oh, well, yeah. it's around the corner. Yeah, And he's still around, isn't he? Abroad, though. Yeah, he, he lives in Germany. He has a German wife. And I see him from time to time. And I always come up from him behind and squeeze his bum. <laughs> and say, guess who this is? He says, you're the only person that touches my bum. <laughs> <laughs> and when it wasn't um, Bachrach and David, it was usually him. I mean, he wrote a lot of, a string, of, most, string of his. Yeah. He most, yeah, most of the stuff. And um, it was really nice working with him because he would start off with something, then I would change it and he wouldn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd say, time to change the lyrics and he wouldn't mind that. So he was good to work with. He. He, we kind of bounced off each other. You made such a good job of that Bachrach and David song. It's a wonder to me that you didn't become the kind of official purveyor of of their songs in this country in the way that Dionne Warwick did in the States. And oh, stuff. no, it didn't work like that. She was their session singer, so she got first dibs on yeah. everything. Yeah. And so um, I didn't want to be a covers person. I had the original stuff that yeah. was being written for me. So. Yeah, yeah. And the look... How much of that was yours? I mean, you've always been interested in fashion and style. And oh, little uh, young girls are, aren't they? Yeah. They know, they know exactly what they want to look like. And uh, I don't particularly like fashion as such. I just like the way things look mm. and that they're part of what you're putting across, how you look. And there's kind of like some subliminal message that goes with it as well. You did have easily the longest legs in, in, in pop, so you're off to a good start with that. Well, they haven't disappeared. You no. Know. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Let's get Eurovision out of the way because I know having to take up some sort of attitude one way or the other and it's changed a bit over the years has been the bane of your life in a way but it needs to be said for the benefit of those who weren't there at the time and weren't even thought of at the time that you won that thing by virtually a record margin. It was a huge victory that you had. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good to win. Yes. <laughs> and in those days it was thought to be really about songs because there weren't that many countries involved in it but all the ones that were had certain interest in songs they had their own song festivals at home certainly the french the germans the italians did and so on that's so, true but i think i think the beeb did a bit of a naughty thing by putting you know asking me to do it because i was always a huge already a huge star in all those countries so yes. i had an already made audience um so I, th I think i had a bit of an unfair advantage hmm. It wasn't the easiest song to do, was it? It was a bit of a beast for a, the novelty song that it was. I can't think of another song that starts with a great long note like that one and then goes into the... <laughs> which is like a sort of vocal exercise. It's quite tricky. I've never heard anybody describe that <laughs> in such musical terms before. <laughs> I'm in awe. <laughs> no. Anyway, at the, at the time, the idea of political voting hadn't come to pass, did it? They were actually... Charmed by the song, so fair enough. You weren't, though. I mean, no reason why you should be. In terms of... It was a job. Yes. I hear Michael Caine's done lots of movies that he didn't oh, want to do. More than the ones he did, I think. <laughs> yes, yes, that's quite right. And, of course, that was a song you automatically had to record in German, Italian, Spanish and French and all those languages that you did do. Yeah. yeah. I love singing in different languages. It's wonderful. So it wasn't just a chore to do to no. go through all those versions. You, no, you, you got I love I love doing it. it. Yeah. I've always loved singing in different languages. I started when I was right really young when I was about 17 I started with French. And it opened up a whole different audience for me. 
Did you stick to the European ones or did you sometimes go further afield linguistically? No, I didn't. I didn't. I stuck with that. But with Spanish, it also went around South America. And, of course. Yeah. yeah. And a bit of America. Yeah. And seven years ago, was it, you revisited that song? Again, different tempo, different feel altogether. And a, a very subtle revenge on the thing, I suppose it might have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go again. That's great. I love it. A subtle revenge. Mm, yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did, I did a, another version kind of like a, a wistful version, yes. really. Yes. I'd love to do another version. I'd love to do a scream-out kind of dance, huge David Greta kind of yes. version and uh, like a huge dance video to go with it. I'd love to do that, really turn it on its head. But there you go. There's lots of things I'd love to do and I never get round to. Oh, you should get round to that. I'd, I'd like that. I'd buy that. <laughs> Is it true you turned down It's Not Unusual at some stage for some reason? Um, yeah, I turned it down. It was it was sent to me as a demo. You know, you used to yeah. in those olden days. We used to have these little vinyl discs, white were, labels. Yes, yeah. well, they weren't even white labels. They were black, big thick things, acetates. Oh, the acetate one. The acetates. Yes, yes. yes. And um, yes, yeah, so I've got an acetate of Tom Jones doing my demo for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I turned it down because I thought he sang it so well. I just thought I just said no. He's got to record it. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I don't think you missed much. If you look, look at that lyric written out, it makes absolutely no sense at all. It's oh, a completely nonsensical song. It just makes sense, though, doesn't it? It's like with, when Tom Jones sings it. It just really, well, yeah, I mean, it was yeah. the making of him. And he's so, he's sweet because he's always been grateful for that. <laughs> I'll give him that. <laughs> the only other obligatory subject we've got to do is the barefoot thing. Did you just like singing with your shoes off? I know, I do most things with my shoes off. There you go. Although, when, when you started marketing uh, a look in terms of clothes and so on, shoes was one of the first yeah, things you did, wasn't it? Yeah, I had a shoe label. I've still got one pair of shoes in the Sandy Shore box that I keep. Yeah. Just pristine, unworn. And, yeah. Well, no, they've been worn a bit. I know the you know, labelled what shows they were worn on. But getting through all this, I mean, contracts, copyrights, licensing, all that, you were on top of at an earlier... Stage. I was, but I didn't realise it. I had to do lots of legal stuff, and um, I'm jumping to the 80s now because it no, wasn't. That's all right. yeah. It wasn't until the 80s when I worked with the Smiths yes. that I had the um, the wherewithal to challenge all the contracts that I'd had, and a lot of them because I was underage when I signed them, they were out of time. You can only sue within mm. a certain amount of time, so I lost all that. But I did reclaim everything during that time by proving that it actually had belonged to me all along, which is great now. It's just fantastic to, to know that I own my body of work because I can caretake it properly. I can make sure that it's looked after properly and not misused. You see so many people's work yes. misused nowadays. Your travels, because of all these international versions of songs, were not just geographical, they were political as well, weren't they? Because, uh, I don't think we noticed this at the time in Britain, but you, you did a kind of w world tour of, of despots and, and dictators. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't do a world tour, but being able to access the audiences there, you had to appease whoever was leading the country yes. in one way or another. You had to do that. So if I wanted to sing in Greece, I had to sing for the Greek militia. 
Uh-huh. And if I wanted to sing in Persia or the Middle East, I had to sing for the Shah. And the same thing in, in if I wanted to sing in South Africa, I had to sing for all the government people there first before they would allow me to sing to the black audiences that I wanted to sing in the first place. It wasn't a global industry then no. that it is now, that's been built now. And so those um, lines of communication through entertainment just weren't open. So the only ones that were actually open were cultural, political ones. And so those were the doors that I had to open. But the people in the satellite countries just loved listening and they could get it. They could get it by satellite, all the stuff that was going on. So I had huge fan bases in places now that have these lovely new names, Herzegovias and places like that. And every now and again I'd go there, I'd go to Czechoslovakia or uh, Bulgaria or all those countries. It's just so thirsty for democratic way of living Um, and I was kind of like represented that to them. In in those days when you arrived say in Persia or or Chile what sort of entourage would you have? Would it be like... Oh no I didn't take anybody really, I just took my uh, secretary. Yes. Sometimes an MD, that's about it really I would pick up a band while I was there but most of my time I tried to spend just with my girly, she's called my secretary actually, she was my girlfriend. Not girlfriend, girlfriend, she was my yeah. mate. Right. Just somebody female to talk to rather than smelly boys' socks everywhere. <laughs> Guilty, yes. <laughs> but every so often, and it happened then, I suppose after all these hits and all this travel, you've kind of stopped, you felt you've had enough for the time being. And it, sometimes yeah. it's felt quite final, but it turned turned out, thank God, it's not to be. You've taken I wanted a rest it to be business, final, though. I wanted to be final. I remember as soon as I got pregnant, I thought, well, that's it. I can stop now. Yeah. I'm so old-fashioned, aren't I? It's what it's what we used to do. It's like, oh yes, I can put my uh, dancing shoes up or my bare shoes, bare feet up, and uh, have a rest. And I so wanted to. But it turned out that I wasn't able to. You went into acting for a bit. I did some acting, which was great. I loved it. Big roles you did too. Yeah, yeah I was. Um, we used to live around the corner to Glenda Jackson and her husband, then husband Roy Hodges. And yeah. um, he gave, <laughs> I saw him out somewhere and he said, oh, Glenda and I have been talking about you in bed. I thought, oh. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> a bit unhealthy. Mm. So <laughs> he said, yeah, we reckon that you should play Ophelia in this thing. So I started playing some Shakespeare and then... Um, I liked that so much that he then cast me as Saint, uh, as Joan of Arc in St. Joan, the Bernard oh, Shaw Bernard thing. Oh, the Bernard Shaw version, yes, right, yes. And then, uh, because my husband was in trouble financially, I couldn't continue doing it because you have to be able to afford to act nowadays. Yes. And um, I couldn't because I had so many of his bills to pay, but there you go. Did people, <laughs> people did readily accept you as a stage... Yeah, I mean, Joan of Arc was made for me. I love her. I've done a pilgrimage to Wren and everything. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Because they seem to have a tolerance for for comedians, especially who go straight, as it were. But singers, I don't know. There aren't too many of them who've tried it. Well, some some of them, they do um, musicals. But I I think I've always been considered as a bit left of field and not Mm. kind of like, I don't think I'm quite considered although they keep trying to push me into being a light, light entertainment because yeah. that's about the extent of their imagination as far as women are concerned. Uh, yes. I push that boundary that way and I think because I'm quite known for doing things a bit off the wall so that's why they accepted it, I suppose. Yes. And all the other actors like me, 
And it's really great because even nowadays I see them on the people that are actually on telly or in a film or something. And I say, oh, that's so-and-so. He played my... (laughs) I think it was in one of these pauses, or it might have been, that you put out an interesting album called uh, Reviewing the Situation, which at the time I took it that that was what exactly you were doing. You were looking around, seeing who was writing what and picking favourites from them. Because there was was Dylan, there was Donovan, Beatles, Stones, John Sebastian, Rufus Thomas from the... From the R&B yeah, yeah, situation, yeah. different stuff, and that was that was I'd, an interesting I, departure. Well, I think people by that time had got into concept albums, hadn't they? So, and oh. I'd never really done albums before. I was a singles girl, so I'd put out maybe four or five singles a year. That's like ten songs. That's like an album. So my albums really consist of things that I didn't consider proper for, um, <laughs> you know, for for an A side. My B sides are my best work. And my B-sides, because they're the songs I didn't think would cut it commercially, but the ones that I really enjoyed singing. So um, when I came to the end of the 60s, um, I think I was also at the end of a contract, so I could do what I wanted to do. And I decided just to review what had happened in the 60s and, like, the things that had actually caught my eye or ear or whatever, all the way from Rufus Thomas all the way up to Led Zeppelin, which then was, like, the thing, just coming through. And I just... It was like my my take on it, really, a musical take on things that had caught my ear. Even when I did things like Coconut Grove, that was to do with how America had kind of influenced what was going on towards the end of the 60s and how things suddenly changed. You'd have made a very good uh, Nancy. Did anybody ever (laughs) ask you? Uh, Perhaps I should rephrase that. I will rephrase that. Sorry, but... you're, you're so full of the unexpected. Well, good. Um... <laughs> but you would. I'm just, you... I loved Lionel Bart. I thought he was brilliant. I yeah. just loved everything that he did and everything about him. He was such an extraordinary, generous man mm-hmm. in every single way that I felt that he he was a working-class writer. Yes. That was the first time. He was, it was like pre-Andrew Lloyd Webber, all the kind of musical stuff before that had been a bit mm. yeah. so he he was he was like the first so I think that's why I chose him we now come to those hard times in the 70s which you have talked about and um, the melodramatic version of how it all was resolved was that Morrissey and the Angus Smiths and so on sort of fished you out of retirement because they were fans really that's yeah. as simple as that yeah is that really what yeah. did happen yeah 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 I don't know what I did to deserve that in well, more ways than one. Well, it's hard to imagine <laughs> Morrissey doing something so voluntarily heroic. As, uh, yes, he's yeah. not all bad. <laughs> but he's, I read everywhere, and you said it too, that he's very, very difficult to... But that Johnny Marr, who was a psych, guitar psychic, was much I think more I think Morrissey works at being difficult. Yes. I don't think it comes as easily <laughs> as he makes out. <laughs> yeah. There are some really... I've had talks with him at times, and he has some really soft spots. You have to really unpeel the onion to get to them, but, you know. You did university tours and stuff and things like that. That was the way back in to, was it? To yeah, I, yeah. I, I, well, I, I thought this is a chance to actually go back to basics. Because I'd been with the Smiths, I'd suddenly found this new young audience yeah. that I hadn't had before. It was really good because, like, afterwards the students would come back after, backstage and ask questions and tell me about their lives and it was a really kind of good exchange it was really kind of personal I learned a lot from that and realised I really do love young people so much still um, I love that um, hopefulness that they have You obviously needed much more time 
sort of to think about you because it's about then that you got well the, the focus of the story shifts from the outwardness of pop music to the inwardness of other things Buddhism was one psychotherapy was another did they arrive sort of together no I became uh, I started practicing Buddhism when I was 30 mm-hmm. and um, that's I think that was probably the turnaround time in my life where things started getting better and better and better and I was kind of more in sync with myself and with people around me and um, I didn't start, I went to university when I was just before I was 40 around 40-ish what difference does Buddhism make what, what, to you, uh, way, adopting that, you know, embracing Buddhism in the way that you did? What, what difference would it make to um, your life in the business, for example, you know, as an artist? In many ways, it's made it more difficult <laughs> because yeah. it's made me, you know, like, it's to do with, you know, finding your integrity mm. and always going back to that that point all the time and trying to bring out the best in yourself all the time and the best in everybody else around you the business is not really keyed up to that sort of thing Mm. and um, I find it very hard sometimes sticking to my principles when everybody around me is unprincipled I suppose everybody could say that wherever whatever their circumstances whatever their environment was but I I do find that um, the clash between people's desire for fame and commerce and you know, making loads of money and just the sort of the antithesis of what the creative impulse is all about. Mm. The, one of the urges of being a Buddhist is to make proper contact with somebody else, make a real life-to-life contact. Yes. And it's also false, our industry, even if you walk into a studio, you and I sitting here sort of like talking about subjects quite in- intimate for me and probably you spend a lot of time writing <laughs> down all your questions and... Mm. And we don't. We've never met each other before. Yes. And um, we don't, may not meet each other again. And it's kind of a false. Yes. It's a false premise. Mm-hmm. And um, and so and and journalists. When I speak to journalists, I find that really difficult, because I I, I just want to be myself and tell. But I daren't give them what they were in case they misuse it because I don't know where they're coming from. Yes. So it's not like that all the time, but those are the difficulties that I, or the questions that I'm always asking myself all the time. How am I learning to do it with you now? Well, I, You know, I'm being honest with you and thinking, I am throwing I, this in and I know you're struggling thinking, what kind of an interview is No, no, this? no, I'm very grateful for it. No, it's exactly the, the point that I wanted to get at. But I wanted to know, for example, if what you've just been talking about is clashes at all with the therapeutic impulse because oh. if you're pursuing your own fulfillment in the way that you've described oh, how do you no, it no, obviously, no, it obviously no, no, didn't, for, no. didn't for Jung for example because no, no, he no, pursued no. both but uh, it's not like that at all because you cannot um, achieve your own enlightenment without the enlightenment of everything around you is mm-hmm. it, it has to be like that right um, and enlightenment it just means knowing that the truth of that moment it's nothing fancy it's yeah. just knowing the truth of that moment and living that moment hundred percent. Right. So um, I try to make every interaction that I make. It, 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 I can't become enlightened on my own. Hmm. I need my environment to, for me to, to work with all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's not a me thing. It's a me, me. It's you and me. Right. It's all about you and me. Probably I, I would be a, sol- a solitary person if I didn't practice Buddhism. But because ah. I practice Buddhism, I go out and try to connect with people. Yes. Now let's talk about the present day and the things that are continuing. I mean, the arts clinic is still still run. That's in the Harley Street. 
Arts Clinic. Yes. Yeah. I still I still run that. I don't often do. I, in fact, I don't do any therapy myself anymore right. because um, I can't be in the public eye and and see somebody. But no. firstly, because I'm not constantly available. And secondly, because it um, it mucks up their perception of me as a therapist if they can see me on the telly and everything, it kind of, of it, um, yes. yeah, it doesn't work. Yes. So, but we have great. I, it means that what the purpose of me doing it wasn't to start a practice of my own. Already had one. What was it? What it was was to make sure that artists and creators and people in the creative industries had access to people that were pucker, that people that were properly qualified, people that, you know, because we are, we're suckers, you know. Mm. And uh, so many people, I've seen them spending fortunes on these quacks. And I was just, just wanted to make sure that they were able to get the best possible. So yeah. we've got the, all the best consultants there and all people that I would trust mm. um, to send. My always thing is like, would you trust them with one of your children? Would you trust them with your spouse? Yes. So I, I always base my judgment of somebody's practice on, on that. Mm. In a more pra- immediately practical direction, there's the, the Featured Artists Coalition, which is a campaigning group designed to protect the rights of musicians out on the great digital ocean, I suppose. That's the way <laughs> to put it, isn't it? You know. That's another nice <laughs> phrase you've got. <laughs> but I don't know how you'd go about that because it's so vast. The field is so vast and changeable. <laughs> So much room for exploitation, so and it's unregulated. How? So how do you do it? Yeah. Well, for a start, you start an organisation for recording artists. There's never been one before, mm-hmm. never. And so what's been happening is that we've been represented by other bodies that purport to represent us, uh-huh. and they don't. So um, that's the start of it, and to, that is no mean task mm-hmm. because recording artists are, you know, we are narcissistic and um, egotistic and in it for ourselves and we're competitive. and So for us to join any kind of organisation is a huge step. But it's not me on my own. I mean, like, the whole board is made up of artists. So we all take our turns in doing things. And, um, you know, I I work with um, um, Nick from Pink Floyd a lot, who's gorgeous. Uh He's like a hamster. (laughs) And um, and Ed O'Brien from Radiohead. Yes. who is just adorable. And Billy Bragg was also really supportive as well and nice, great people to work with. Talking of huge things to be overcome, as you were just now, on top of everything else, the varied businesses of life, you had a horrible car crash last year. Was oh, it last it was, year? Did you see my scar? Yeah. <laughs> my scar looks not here. Can you see? Uh, it's covered up a lot down uh, here and goes down to my eye here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a not a nice moment, though. Goodness me. Yeah, that but was... it makes you think, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It certainly makes you think. The car broke. We was we we would have been okay. We were in a four by four, but there was something wrong with it that cracked when we were going over, and then we kept going over because it cracked and broke, ah. and so it got all pretty nasty. Yeah. This was in France. So yeah. yeah. Mm. Luckily, it was in France because we were in the middle of a country, and they're just so together. Um, you know, with the, I knew the firemen because I, they come and knock at my door and, and yeah. introduce themselves, so you know who they are, and you see them down at the square, and and uh, and also all the people from the ambulances. I knew them as well because I'd seen them down the market. So going in and out of consciousness and then seeing a friendly face that I knew was really cool. This is great. Mm-hmm. I think it's a rather a nice scar, don't you think? I should have had you some surgery, on it. you know, well, some well, cosmetic stuff, but I haven't got round to it. Yes, maxillofacial surgeons, yes, yes. 
terrible, <laughs> terrible trade, but um, very, very essential. Um, and after that, there was understandably noises about you stopping altogether, and I think probably you did mean it this time, but it didn't work again because as we speak, oh, there's a new mean, single uh, out. I did mean it. I did mean it. I so meant it. I'd done a year on tour with Jules Holland, and it was wonderful. I actually found out that I'm really good on stage. I re- found I had a great rapport with the audience. I found out that I no longer suffer from performance anxiety, which totally crippled me when I was younger. Yeah. Gone completely. Isn't so that great? Because it, it goes, it goes I, the other way with yes, so many people. I they get worse. I killed myself. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, and Wonderful. Jules kept saying to me, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And he said, you've got to do what makes you happy. You've got to do what makes you happy. And when I was having the car crash, I kept thinking, I'm not happy. I can't die yet because I'm not doing what makes me happy. I don't want to continue like this. And I was just about to sign a contract. Decided not to sign it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't sign it and I decided that I, what doesn't make me happy is I don't want to, If OK, yeah, I could do it, but I don't want to continue doing all this stuff that I've done before when I was younger. I mean, I'm a big girl now, for goodness sake. It's ridiculous. And while it's great to, whilst it's great to actually please an audience, I get nothing out of it, mm. except that I know that I've pleased them and I think this is a bit of a one-way street. So I decided, that was why I decided to retire. And then... Mm. Ta-da. Yeah. And then somebody said to me, well, what would stop? What, what would make you want to sing? I said, well, working with people I really admire, people that would, I think would bring out something in me that I hadn't touched before. And um, they said, well, write a list of people. So I had two people on my list. And one of them was a guy called Neil Davidge who'd done work on um, Massive, Massive Attack. Attack. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and on the other side of the country in Bristol, he was making his list of people he'd like to... <laughs> He, voices he wanted to work with and I was on that list and uh, so he rang me and it was like wow this thing happening at the same time so the song was difficult at first but then as soon as I, it was great it was almost like an acting song yes. and uh, one that was really kind of profound subject material I really found I was mine could mm. claim it and um Long notes, big sound. It was quite yeah, different. Yeah, really a lot of cinematic. That's what I yes. love. I like I like songs with pictures, and just great working there and being in Bristol and just working with people that just it was for the crack. It was for the crack, and to do that when my, all my life I have been um, the the downside of owning and all your stuff and being caretaker is that there's lots of business and management and those kind of problems that you think about rather than yes. just the work. Mm. So for once it was just the work and I thought, oh, this is brilliant, I love this. So I said, yeah, put it out. That's what happened. Yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. I'm freewheeling. But the voice is free so... basing. The, voice, the, <laughs> <laughs> the voice is so broad on it. It's, it's a it's a big It's my sound. proper voice. It's my proper voice. Yeah. I think what you start with is your baby voice and then you get your middle period voice, which I suppose is probably the stuff around the Smiths and the Hello Angel album. Yeah. And, like, this is my voice for now. Mm. At least I have one. It certainly. I, I mean, I was thinking this morning, I mean, the 60s was the voice of a flower and now it's the voice of a tree. I mean, this is a oh, really... Wow. Don't you think? Oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I hope so. I hope so, with deep roots. Mm. Mm. I hope so, because I was thinking, you know, I don't have the advantages that I had when I was young. I'm not beautiful. Well, I'm a 
attractive. I know I'm attractive. You don't have to flatter me again. But I'm not beautiful like you are when you're young. I'm not. I can't run up and down the street like a mad person anymore. Mm. Um, And um, But what I do have is that I've got a less is more kind of thing. I've got minimum effort, maximum result because Mm. of my experience. And uh, depth that I would like to impart to other people. Um, and an openness, I think, to get something back all the time. It's like a two-way street. Mm. So that I, I, I presume that's why I still like working with creative people and young people. Although older people are OK too. Let me ask you, because we're near the end of our time, let me ask you about songs, because you have such a huge experience of singing them, but also a psychological insight into their place in the conscious and unconscious worlds, I suppose. Why do we like them so much? Why do we put so much energy and commitment to them? What are they en- enabling us to do, songs, do you think? Um, explore our, our emotions um, um, and um, ex- bring memories back mm-hmm. and um, uh, thoughts for the future. Um, it's like they can... They, for me, I can only see for me uh, that help you explore your own inner landscape and what actually you share with other people. Sometimes it's quite a shock when somebody says a lyric. You think, "Oh, that was this like singing my, you know, singing yeah. my life." That's my life. Yeah. 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 So um, that that is a very um, it's it's a it's a great spiritual feeling for somebody to know that they that that. And I don't think any other art form does it in quite the same way because music actually um, hits parts of the brain that other art forms can't hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always, uh, because you're absorbing it through your ears, you, your other senses become enmeshed in it. So you have pictures, images of what happened in the time, smells, um, rain, anything. Yeah. It kind of conjures up the whole lot so it's not just the sound. And it's also like somewhere you, you, a place you can play in. Do you know when you hear music? I love it sitting in a plane. This sounds really crazy, but I love sitting in a plane and, and plane and listening to the harmonics of the engine. Yes. And the symphonies that come up. I could. I, I could. <laughs> I could yeah. have been Tchaikovsky if only I could. As a small <laughs> child, I used to do this with bath water. We had a very tinny bath, and the water came, and you could hear. Tunes in it. It's great, isn't it, to yes. actually hear the harmonics in yes, everything and yes. realise that there are harmonics happening everywhere. Mm. So it's sound is just an amazing thing because it's sound and vibration. It's happening like the, the, all the um, atoms that are moving in this table. It, it's mm. it's really profound. So I think that's why I, I like music. I also like the visual arts, but there you go. I don't think we're going to beat that. Let's let's close. Thank you very much for being completely recognisable as yourself for half a century. Sandy Shaw, this has been a revelation in many ways. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for stopping by. And a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> my thanks to Sandy and to my producer, Steve Softly. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.